it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. sensational shot and you're listening to the evening glass with luke little boy and fletcher walton a tremendous amount to get through and talk about today uh all sorts of films that i've managed to catch at the cinema that i'd love to talk to you about fletch and also um one of our very favorite films of all time uh big trouble in little china i know we're going to catch up on that as well i've been trying to get down to the movies with my wife lex and we've seen a number of films but the one we went to go and see last night was particularly moving and really meant an awful lot to us. It's called The Florida Project. It's definitely in the running for one of my films of the year, and I really am looking forward to in a few weeks, Fletch, when we sit down and start to record our top picks, I suppose, for the past 12 months. But The Florida Project's definitely up there for me. Directed by Sean Baker, and uh, I actually hadn't seen any of his stuff previously, but I'm now going to try and go back and check out Tangerine which uh, I've heard is um, supposed to be really great as well, a really good example of his work. And I believe Fletcher, I'm right in saying that Tangerine, wasn't that the film that was shot on an iPhone or something? Yeah, that's uh, that's the way that it was marketed, about uh, um, a set of kind of street dwellers and among them uh, various LGBTQIA characters. Uh, I didn't get to see that one either. It looked pretty gorgeous. His latest, The Florida Project, looks incredibly gorgeous. This is shot on film as well. And... Um, this William Defoe is the starring. It uh, uh, has a lead role in it. Bobby playing Bobby Hicks. William Defoe is essentially the manager of uh, a motel where a lot of the uh, tenants there they they stay long term. Maybe there's there's one night where they have to get out of the hotel for legal reasons and come back. But in 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 essence, they are staying there with their families and and they live at this motel, which, as the title suggests, is in in Florida. It's in Orlando, next door to Disneyland. And of course, the families that are living in this motel, and they are garish, garishly painted, the motels in the area. And they're called things like Futureland or Mag- Magical Kingdom, things to evoke that sense of uh, innocence and, and, and Disney magic. But of course, they're well away from the Disney property, and they're in a much more deprived area. Uh, also living there, the family that we focus on is um, Haley, and Mooney is six years old. Uh, Haley's played by. Uh, Bria, I hope I'm getting this right as well. It's uh, Bria Vinat, Vinat, but I believe that she was actually a bit of an Instagram star before she was before she was cast in this film. But she puts in one hell of a performance here as the young mother of Mooney, who's played by Brooklyn Prince. The film, like I said, is really about extremes. Disneyland, the spectre of Disneyland, right round the corner, but this extreme abject poverty that these families, young families, are living in in single rooms in this motel. Uh, William Defoe is, like I say, the hotel manager, and he really is um, a little bit of a backbone uh, to, to the story because he, he witnesses these people, and although a lot of them give him a hard time because they see him as the manager or the man, he really does have an awful lot of affection for the people that stay at the complex, and he really does look out for them. It's okay for us, the audience, to like him as well because he very occasionally we see his boss who who comes in and says oh you really need to be careful they can't have their bikes left outside or whatever so we know that William Defoe really is actually quite a, a soft touch as the hotel manager 
Um, but anyway, it's set during the summer where the, li- the little kids are obviously off school. And like I said, Mooney, he's six years old. The story itself really does focus on her and her friends. What's wonderful about the film is it really is about youth. It's about childhood. There's a lot of terribly dark, seedy things that are going on behind the scenes, not least of which her mother's involved in and uh, and other characters throughout the, throughout, the, throughout the motel. But you're always very much viewing the film through the eyes of the six-year-old kids, how they're finding things. And what's wonderful is there's clearly a lot of improvisation between the kids they were obviously just told to go and play and we 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 see them playing an awful lot in the sun and talking to each other they're swearing at each other a lot and shouting over one another and it feels really really organic really really natural the the kid as well the six-year-old who we focus on Mooney she really is tough as nails as a lot of the other kids are because they're out on their own a lot during the day they're left to their own devices very very much and they are getting up to no good and uh, sometimes that really does cross the line as well and, and, and uh, there's, there's some interesting parts of the film where, where that actually comes into play. Really, really powerful moment towards the end where, like I say, we see life through the eyes of the children. We see what their parents are up to through their eyes, so much of it going over the kids' heads. But there's, there's a moment toward the end where Mooney actually breaks down into tears and I won't give anything away because that's just you know, completely giving the plot away. And then that's when we're reminded that she's a child despite going through what we would perceive to be terrible hardship of course she's just a kid she doesn't necessarily think that we're reminded of the vulnerability of the child and uh, that was just a tremendously moving mo- moving moment uh, in the film for, for, for us when we were watching it and certainly brought a tear to my eye so that's the florida project um by sean baker and I would certainly urge people to go out and watch that in the cinema. It, it is currently playing as soon as we can get this podcast out, hopefully. And um, it's definitely in the running for one of my films of the year. Uh, it, it's pretty plotless. It just meanders along. And it's really just about the people that live in this motel uh, in poverty against the backdrop of uh, the tourists and the, the glamour and the pomp and circumstance of, of Disney. Fletch, maybe you'll get a chance to see that one soon, unless you've already managed to get to the pictures to see that. No, I haven't yet. I suppose that it will be out again in December, January, because it's sure to be an Oscar contention, especially the Academy loves performances by little kids, and it's going to be an interesting Academy Awards this year. They can't pat themselves on the back in the way that they love to because they're so full of bastards. So what will I saw one suggestion that this might be the year that for, for Christopher Nolan that Dunkirk could win best picture mm. because it's such um an uncontroversial pick it is a triumph of filmmaking and filmmaking alone there's very little sermon well there's no sermonizing there's mm. very little about the film other than a triumph of filmmaking and mm. so that might be the kind of pick they go for because they're going to look pretty silly if they try to even if they try to champion a rape drama or something uh female centric then it will look ridiculous. So I think it's this next year, so February, March uh, 2018 Academy Awards, they will try to engender some sympathy and um, buoy their spirits because this is traumatising to Hollywood to an extent as well to be fundamentally revealed as evil. Uh, and they'll try and give an Academy Award nomination to this little kid and they'll try and do something for some marginalised... for films which depict marginalised peoples. And that's... I did see... I saw, uh, I saw Sean Baker on... Charlie Rose, he was talking about that, that that's what he's interested in. It's in Tangerine, mm. as I said, it takes as its protagonist a uh, trans woman, and his first film, Takeout, is about a Chinese immigrant. This one, as you said, is about very, very poor people, and it's that's what's interesting Baker at the moment. Um, mm. Depicting mm. those that aren't usually depicted, people living on the margins, that's great. you know. And it's, it's very good when it's done, as from what you've said, it's done... 
in a tone which is never condescending but is realistic. Uh, a little bit like Fish Tank by Andrea Arnold from mm-hmm. oh, a long it's time ago, incre- seven or eight years ago now. But It's incredibly it's incredibly fly on the wall. Like I say, you just see everything through the eyes of the kids. And in the same way that I remember... So you must remember growing up watching films as a very young kid. And then as you grow up with the film, you then go, oh, I get that joke now. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I, now I know what they're talking about. Yeah. There's clearly a lot of moments in this film where where you miss, you almost miss it because you're seeing it through the eyes of, of the child and the parent says, oh, I'm just going to go off and do this or you go off and play and you don't think anything of it for a moment just like the kid isn't mm. and you're taking it at face value and then you sort of second guess it. You go, oh, hold on. Did she just, is she just going off to do so-and-so? Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a really interesting moment and uh, like I say, completely fly on the wall. What I love about it and what Lex, my wife, loved about it as well is that it is pretty plotless it's uh, I hate using the term, but it's just it really is slice of life. It it really is just you feel like you've just been plonked there, and it really does remind me of so many parts of America. I've travelled over America with um, friends on holidays, um, two or three times. W- one lengthy trip in particular for a few weeks where we were driving around. We were staying in a lot of motels, nowhere with the same poverty, anywhere near the same poverty as portrayed in the in the film The Florida Project. But just the the heat, the humidity. The, the sounds of the night time, the, mm. the look and the feel and the smell of the of the freeway nearby that you pull off of and the signs and the, everything. It was just so, so... Uh, it, it just brought it all back to me in spades. It really, really felt, um, well, just incredibly authentic. And it, I mean, it is shot at an actual motel. They thank them at the, at the end credits. Yeah. And... Um, Although that's you know that's not obviously the reason. It, you know, so much of that film is... There is music in it. There's... Um, there's 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 pop songs there's music there's a soundtrack of of that of that ilk but so much of it is just about the sounds and of, of the background the ambiance and just the sounds of kids laughter and and kids screaming and shouting and hollering over one another so yeah the florida project definitely running for for one of my films of the year i don't think it's going to beat my absolute favorite film of the year yet but i'm not i'm still not ready to uh to divulge that, and we we need to reserve some kind of uh, some some sort of um, anticipation for the uh, oh you're the, right the countdown. Yeah. I had thought that I hadn't been bowled over by many films this year, and it turned out that was just the summer. I went back through my diary and realised, actually, yeah, there's uh, and aside from the obvious ones, one of which is Baby Driver, which has been described to me subsequently as a film in which everyone thinks the protagonist is too young, except Kevin Spacey. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to the couple of episodes we'll devote to the films of the year, and we will try to uh, execute in such a way that it's that we find a f- some of the lesser known projects. But that, that, that's the thing. Like um, Luke and I can't watch everything. In fact, Luke, I'm really pleased you got to see the Florida Project because that's I think you and I would consider ourselves as well-intentioned moviegoers. Let's put it like that. And sometimes, mm-hmm. still, with the best will in the world, you can't drag yourself out to see. A film like Tangerine or a film like The Florida Project, it sometimes it passes you by. I'm really pleased you got to see it. And we can't see everything. I don't think either of us saw Land of Mine. And there are so many foreign pictures, mm. like uh, last year's Son of Saul, that we both missed. And we know, we, we know, like strictly speaking, they're the best film of the year. But the podcast is about what we get to see, our experience at the cinema. And if we saw everything and saw everything that was good, then we'd just be Mark Kermode, wouldn't we? And it would kind of be rote. 
We're trying, trying mm-hmm. to, through our own prism, our own perspective. But before we move on to the next film, um, I need to get another beer. Listeners, Luke was trying to pull a fast one there. I went away to get my beer, and as I was coming back, I realised the reason he doesn't want to announce his favourite film of the year already is because it's going to be Last Jedi. That's a fate accomplished, <laughs> you cheeky bastard. <laughs> um, well, I've heard, you know what, the rumour is that it is supposed to be very good. I, it's not good. The film I have in mind for my film of the year is not connected to Star Wars in any way. Okay. I, hate, I hasten to add. But I have heard that on the rumour mill that Last Jedi is supposed to be very good. And of course, the proof seems to already be there in a certain sense that Disney have, uh, th- you know, this is a subject for the local trouble podcast uh, on one sensational shot, but Disney do seem to have invested a tremendous amount in Mr. Ryan Johnson now with a brand new Star Wars trilogy for him to helm yeah. all of his own. So, it, you know, it seems to me like this is what, this is almost what they were hoping JJ, JJ Abrams would be for them. Uh, for, and then he said, Oh, I'm only going to do the first one. And of course now we've got, maybe they do have their, their new kind of, creative director or whatever you you want to call them I, I don't really know in this modern age of hollywood but they, they seem to have their their guy now who as far as they're concerned they get on well with him he can turn things around he can rally the troops but also he's a creative and he can write a decent script and direct people well so they seem happy <laughs> and the film's not out yet finally out of all of those millennial sci-fi directors josh trank trevorrow uh, Mark Webb. There's been a litany who made one or two pictures and then were given a big, big property. Mm. Um, they found one. They found one that can actually deliver the goods. Yeah, and Lu- you know, it doesn't surprise me. Looper was great, wasn't it? And um, mm. I enjoy that film an awful lot. Yeah. No, it's a great movie, and um, I've got a tremendous amount of respect for it. One of the funny things about um, about Looper, I have to say, is um, I've never quite understand it, uh, understood the, the makeup effects. So Joseph Gordon-Levitt, of course, is supposed to be playing a young, uh, a young um, Bruce yeah. Willis, but I've never quite understand understood why they needed to make him literally look like Bruce Willis. Because in, throughout the history of film, we've always had that suspension of disbelief, right? Where we think, oh, this person's playing a younger version of this other person. They don't quite look the same. Yeah. But I can buy that because <laughs> you know, it's, I always remember this uh, Jerry uh, Jerry Seinfeld stand-up where he talks about the suspension of disbelief in a theatre. Where uh, you know it's insane. The curtain goes up. There's a little cardboard cutout of something, uh, but you sit there applauding, going, "Yeah, we're in uh, 16th century France. Yeah, I can yeah. buy this. This is fine." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and the same has to be said. So Looper, I never quite understood because it was just so distracting to have uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt with this this absurd makeup. But yeah, and he didn't really. He didn't look like Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis never looked like that. Which Bruce Willis. In 1987, never looked like a Vulcan wearing mascara. That wasn't his look in Blind Date and in Moonlighting. So uh, that was a peculiar choice. Good fun film, though. And Last Jedi is is set to be great. So did you want to talk about uh, any more of the films that I've managed to see? I mean, we can can rattle through some of them. We don't need to go into it too much. I mean, some of them I think you might not have too much of an interest in. Uh, Breathe, Andy Serkis' directing debut. How did you feel about... Have you seen Breathe? I'm assuming it's one you skipped over. You're not really one for the the glossy period dramas, are you? No. uh, 
No, I've seen the trailer four times. <laughs> it, the trailer does go into the film in quite some depth, so I suppose, in essence, you have seen the uh, the um, express cut. <laughs> I'll be equanimical about it, and I'll say that I reckon there will be a time in my life when that f- kind of film would not only a- appeal to me, but that I would find it satisfying. But um, one turn-off is it seems the, the concept is overwhelming to me. Uh, a 28-year-old um, contracts polio and is paralysed forever. No, I can't Can't be doing that. That's just too, that's too sad for me. Uh, I like to be moved. Uh, Lex and I enjoy a good glossy uh, period drama, I have to say. So I will talk about it very briefly. Let's do it. This is Breathe. Yeah, please, Andy yeah. Circus. Andy Circus, of course, our friend... Gollum himself uh, decided to take this one on board and direct it. And uh, like you just alluded to, Fletch, this is a true story. Robin Cavendish, who was given only three months to live after being paralysed from the neck down by polio, I think it was 28, as you say. In time, in the fullness of time, he begins to live out his life as a pioneering advocate for the disabled. And of course, this is going back to the 50s when he contracts the disease. And um, in in a time where the disabled were put away in a hospital and that's where they were to live out the rest of their days and of course he um the the whole conceit of the film is that robin cavendish decides that he he goes from a very low ebb in his life where he just wants to die to thinking you know what i'm going to do something about this if i can get out of this hospital if i can be at home with my family then maybe there's hope for me and maybe i can have some sort of a life and that's one of the great things about it actually is that there's obviously these great set pieces where he is uh, giving a speech or he's uh, um there's a new invention for him there's something a new kind of wheelchair or whatever it might be but one of the great moments about it claire foy who is fantastic in this actually um lex my wife is a big fan of the crown the netflix series and claire foy is in that and she's definitely got that english rose thing going on and she's um she's very great and charismatic on screen she plays the wife diana cavendish and one of the great things about the film is actually just the the little moments when they're in the front room they're with their son and it's about making a cup of tea or whatever and yes there's a little bit of twee british charm to it which uh i think uh I think people know, filmmakers know, does appeal to a certain audience. Uh, but nevertheless, it's um, that's the most touching moment, really. It's the fact that there's these little moments uh, within the family that these people can enjoy together. One of the more jarring uh, elements, <laughs> although it is fun, is um, Tom Hollander, who's, of course, uh, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, and, uh, and I don't know, he was in Pride and Prejudice, wasn't he? The, 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 the one from quite a few years ago now. He he plays um, the twin brothers of, of Claire Foy. So he is playing, he, he is literally starring alongside himself um, and hey, that's talking to himself, in, interacting with himself. And it's incredibly jarring to begin with. I, I always have a slight problem when it's a little bit like, what, what was the Cray film that came out not so long ago with... Um, Legend. Exactly, Legend. And that, that was a little bit, it took me quite a few moments to, to get beyond the fact that yeah, well, I know there's not two of you. I know, so mm. I, I know that I know that because you're you're an actor uh, and and you and you're a real person. So um, yeah, seeing Tom Hollander um, star alongside himself was a little jarring. Did he get paid twice? <laughs> I don't know if he got paid twice. Maybe he did because there is a moment throughout the film where, for a good twenty twenty five minutes during the middle of the film, uh, one of the brothers doesn't tend to hang out with them so much as the other. 
and and you know one of them follows the follows the family on holiday and such and uh, as a result of that i did wonder if uh, just to keep the cost down uh, just just one tom hollander was paid slightly more than the other uh, and he could be uh, he could be in the film a little bit more um so yeah i mean that's to in in as much as anything that is breathe it's um a little bit twee it's it's um it, it's a very touching and moving film but I think Andy Serkis did a good job with it. I really am rooting for him as a director and a creative force. I like Andy Serkis. I like him interviewed. I like his career thus far has been interesting. I think what he's done with the for motion capture as as um, a filmmaking tool and uh, for if you look at you know the Planet of the Apes films, I, I think the the three new Planet of the Apes movies are are fantastic pieces of sci-fi and as good as certainly any of the original ape sequels and, and, and in fact streets above all of them actually that's breathe the one thing i will say despite i'm rooting for the fact that i'm rooting for andy circus very very much i believe um it was made for something along the lines of 15 million and thus far the box office is just shy of uh i don't think it's even at three million yet uh so it's not looking not looking good in terms of the box office receipts um, but uh, but there we go. I didn't mention Andrew Garfield as well, who is Robin Cavendish. And um, you know what? It was refreshing to see him uh, in this film as well, because I haven't actually seen Andrew Garfield in too much else outside of those dreadful Spider-Man pictures. But you you saw him... What film was he in earlier this year? Uh, it was a uh, Martin Scorsese one, wasn't it? No. I, yeah, with Adam. I didn't see it. Silence with Liam Neeson. In the end, do you remember? In the end, I, we, we went to go and see that couldn't uh, for some reason either couldn't get tickets or went thought it was at the wrong time and we settled on Billy Lynn's halftime wank which was all right <laughs> but it and it was his quicker walk, as well listeners his halftime walk but yeah it was quicker <laughs> yes but, um, uh, it was yeah, a very long film wasn't it you're right about circus you know my opinion of circus is colored only by Byrne, who says he's a ham but i should right. you know and what does that mean just that he's an overactor and, oh, uh, and that maybe that's might... why he's so good at motion capture. Yeah, he and and that he might be um, beating the drum too heartily for motion capture because he is its most visible and most successful proponent and its uh, originator, its uh, innovator as well. But what a top bloke. And it shouldn't be over well, that so. he was really good in Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll as well. Oh, I was just about to mention that. It's the Ian Dury biopic and... Mm. I adored that film. I went to go and see that. I took my little brother along to go and see that, and that film meant an awful lot to me, actually. He was really great in that. My uncle told me he watched some interviews around the time of its release, uh, and on set, Andy said to the family, I hope you feel like I'm getting the essence of Ian across, you know, because um, I, I feel like I'm playing his, him as a, as a bit of a cunt. Like, is that all right? And they said, listen, he was a much bigger cunt than that. Don't worry. <laughs> because he had his problems, obviously. And then, like a lot of those great rockers and most, well, most entertainers that we could name, you kind of see, mm. you see a little bit of that with Colin Farrell as well, um, substance abuse issues and stuff. And now he's incredibly open and garrulous and a real joy to be around. I'd like to see him on things like Graham Norton. And that's a film that I really need to check out, but haven't yet, The uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. Have you seen the trailer mm. for that? It looks deranged. It's utterly deranged. I've heard people are freaking out about it. I think in Norwich, <laughs> I think in Norwich, I have sadly missed my opportunity. I mean, it may be at Cinema City, but of course, our boycott continues uh, unless yeah. and, unless unless there's anything from the picket line that I, I haven't heard yet. 
No, it's only gone quiet because we haven't recorded in a while. But, I, you know, um, I found it incredibly freeing to no longer have the Cine World card. It had become a millstone around my neck. I'm seeing as many films, and I don't think this year I'll even have paid much more for them. I've got a couple of deals going, and it just requires a bit more planning. And that's the thing. As adults, we should consider... If it's easy, should we really be doing it? If it's simple, should we take it? Should we be taking the simple option? It's simple to get a takeaway. It's simple to stop by a fast food restaurant. It's simple to get the bus instead of walking 20 minutes. Should we be doing that? And I think it's the same with cinema going as well. It is simple to stroll along to the view and see whatever is on, but it's probably more rewarding and better if you do what I do now, which is actually put in my diary when Death of Stalin will be on at Waterman's, the three or four dates that it's got that I can attend. You do something like that, and I just, you know, I don't... I like that we have the dynamic where it's simply put, like, I, you stream and I don't stream, and I'm not saying you're wrong there, but I like that we represent the alternatives, and it's. I hope that our listenership sees that taking the, the more difficult route, the more tangential route, can be beneficial rather than just going to a, the, the local multiplex or just getting the download. So that's why you still put your laser displayer on. Oh, I've been, I tell you what, I've been so active on that. I've been so active on their Facebook groups recently. I've been buying stuff. I'll take a few pictures. Um, when it comes to it, as we move into the new year, Luke and I definitely intend to launch something of an Instagram account. Now, I've been saying to Luke that I'd like to part fund the website by um selling our old stuff rather than just kickstarter and gofundme where you say i'm poor will you help me which is true we neither of us have any money so you're welcome to send us cash for no reason i in fact <laughs> I, I, I yeah I, I encourage that but um also i'll be selling a few bits and bobs but at the same time i will be giving listenership and uh, the all of our website readers um an insight into my growing growing laserdisc collection it really shouldn't be growing at this point should it i should have stopped at 30 but i've picked up a few this year and i'm gonna i intend to continue picking them up so um do look out for that in the new year I think it's, it's, it's instagram isn't it i'm going to be doing some instagramming yeah do the instagram first we can talk about uh setting the shop up at some point i'd certainly like to do that i think it's a really good idea you and i need to talk things like ssl certificates and e-commerce uh, plugins, but we we can do that uh, behind yeah, the scenes, defi- behind yeah. the curtain. But definitely, do, I would I've been begging you to do an Instagram because um, I know the listeners won't necessarily know this, but Fletcher's bedroom is something of a museum or mausoleum, depending on your point of view <laughs> well, towards yeah. pop culture we, we, past. <laughs> we know which one my mother would say. Yeah, she'd go with the latter certainly. The last thing um, I wanted to say about Breathe before we move on is that I wondered if he's. Presence in the Ian, Ian Jury biopic was what led him to the story of the geezer from Breeze because yeah. they both suffered polio. Mm-hmm. It really did set my mind whirring as well, and I haven't looked into the making of it quite so much. But um, I don't think he conceived of the film or anything like that. He, he he certainly came along and was a hired hand to help direct and hone it and, oh, and right. put it put it put it out there. But um, it wouldn't at all surprise me if because the, the subject matter is so close to it. It was the very first thing that struck me about it but that's breathe and i think um i think that maybe on a few more days uh depending on when we manage to get this podcast out but um it'll certainly be on the streaming services and the uh the dvd before before too long uh, also i wanted to give um a little shout out to hugh bonneville who's one of my uh i, I don't even know why he's one of my f- 
one of my favourite British actors who pops up in. It, most people will know him as down, you know, Downton Abbey. Of course, I think he is. Mm. He's the, isn't he the dad in the Paddington films? Yeah, and of course he's W One A, isn't he? In, in twenty twelve, yeah, um, he's, he's the really lead in picked that. up in the last ten years. He well, has. Five years I, even. I, I, I want to give him a little shout out back to just take a moment to remember when Hugh Bonneville was one of my favourite characters in Notting Hill. Do you remember he used to come in in his trench coat uh, late? He'd be late to the dinner party. Everyone else would be there for a while, and he'd, he'd say, "God." terrible day lost millions because uh, <laughs> he was supposed to be a stockbroker who was really bad at his job or something and like was yeah. constantly in over his head uh, and didn't really do... <laughs> I, I i just rather enjoyed his uh, his running gag throughout that film but anyway top cast and uh, claire foy keep watching her she's going to go on to do um to do great things i think and uh, definitely that english rose thing but uh she, she's got good things ahead of her i believe did you want to talk about a film of your own fletch or i've, I've got another couple that i managed to catch at the cinema let's stick with yours yeah let's stick with yours and uh, one thing i'm going to check out before christmas is paddington 2 i loved the first one chris Wynn and i mm. went along to it if you remember it was um seen as something of a repudiation of brexit it was yeah taking in a, a refugee as they did uh Bloody brilliant, and this one sounds even better, because I've got my reservations about Nicole Kidman. I've got to get over them, because I think that there is room in this world for both Amy Adams and Nicole Kidman. I was probably a little bit wrong there. It's just I love Amy so much. But um, this second one has <laughs> Hugh Grant as the baddie, uh, Fulham, <laughs> Fulham's own Hugh Grant. So I'll make sure I see that, because um, it's going to run and run and run, and Waterman's does um, like children's screening as well. Well, I don't know if they'll let me go on my own to that one. Uh, probably yes, maybe I, maybe we shouldn't find out. I don't know. <laughs> I would I would watch yourself on that one. But yeah, no Paddington. I've only seen the first one dip, dipping in and out of it, but I've I've heard great things. And like you say, it's um, it's London scene through a, a wonderfully colourful and, and perfect and inclusive lens. And mm. I'm looking forward to uh, rechecking it out because I do have it recorded on my uh, T- TiVo. I've got, I'm have got i a TiVo guy these days, Fletch. I've got it recorded on my TiVo box uh, from Channel 4. So I'm going to rewatch that and then I'm going to see Paddington 2, which, like you say, the only reason I've been avoiding it, A, because I want to rewatch the first one, but B, when I'm in Norwich and I know that some of these films aren't going to run for too long, do a little bit of a toss-up. I haven't seen Thor Ragnarok yet and I wouldn't mind going to see that. That. and uh, by all accounts it's very good but I know that that will be running for some time to come so yeah. I can go and check that out I've started to do this thing I've got this new running gag which I can't stop doing you know how I sometimes do that Fletch and I can't stop yeah. uh, just saying a line when it comes into I my like head it. Yeah, I do the same thing <laughs> I'm surprised that we have partners. Whenever I, I need to stop doing this. I, whenever I get to the end of a film in the cinema and the credits are rolling and it's just that moment that people are starting to get up and shuffle out, hmm. I'll, I'll lean over to Lex and then as audibly as possible so everyone can hear, say, if you stay to the end, Iron Man comes. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what the film is. The, well, the good stroke, bad stroke, baffling stroke, mystifying thing about that is that uh, whatever film you're watching these days is likely to include somebody from a big franchise. I mean, Circus is... He's somebody in those films now, isn't he? I think I just saw that he was. Well, he's, yeah, he's in he, Black Panther. He's, is, is he in Black Panther? I didn't even know yeah, that. I was going to say he's the, baddie, he's the baddie in Star Wars, of course. Yeah, and he's uh, Ulysses Clow. Circus is in Age of Ultron and he's in Black Panther. Um, he's, what's you, the f- character name? Ulysses Clower. Quite frankly, that sounds made up. But 
That's one of my favourite running gags as well. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, we, we like, like to keep... We... Sorry, go on, go same on. Same with Bettany as well, you know, he plays... What's the soup butler called in Iron Man? Giles? No, it's got... It's like six letters, and it's an acronym, in it? Oh, oh, like a little bit like Hal or whatever from from Space Two Thousand One. Yeah, I've got to find out what it is now. Every, and we've got a, you know, literally everyone in the world knows the answer because they all religiously follow these. It's Jarvis. Jarvis, yes. Yeah. They missed a um, trick that he should have been voiced by Jarvis Cocker. <laughs> Mistakes, mistakes, misfits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I think Jarvis Cocker. That should be someone's YouTube uh, gag. To to uh, dub in Jarvis Cocker over the Jarvis character in Iron Man because <laughs> he well, does Tom's... a weekly he does a weekly Radio Six music show, so it wouldn't actually be that difficult to get some choice pieces of dialogue and yeah. pop over the top. That's well, a challenge for the listeners. Surely someone can do that and post it to our Facebook page. Yeah, we ca- we don't have the time because we're doing this, uh, you know, recording once every six weeks, maybe. So you know, mm. but no, it's the sort of thing that I, if we did that, we'd um we'd get a sitcom. I think that's what happens, isn't it? You get on ITV four doing something like that. These days, if you just recut Jarvis Cocker into a Marvel Cinematic Universe picture, they give you a sitcom on ITV four. nothing but that's how it always begins there's at least one more film we need to mention before we wrap up the 31st anniversary of the release of big trouble in little china which contains one of luke's favorite character actor performances by the great jerry hardin (laughs) (laughs) a joke between luke and i is that luke can't stand deep throat from the first season of the x-files and then he does recur <laughs> occasionally luke's convinced he's he a bad comes, actor and come, i comes <laughs> back as a ghost sometimes doesn't he in yeah a just to piss you off yeah <laughs> <laughs> but um you don't you, you've never liked him have you you say that oh, he's a bad actor bless him i feel really bad now <laughs> because um you know bless him he, he died um fairly recently didn't he it was only a few years ago if memory serves um, and now, all, now the thing is, all, now he's dead. All the allegations are coming out. You know, countless women and men are saying Jerry Hardin is a bad actor. No, he's, bl- bless no, him. no. I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking, of course. No, um, I feel terrible, and uh, <laughs> I, I feel terrible. Should, should because... we should we reverse our position then? No. Well, look, I, <laughs> he's kind of a one-note actor. He kind of does his thing. And at the opening of Big Trouble in Little China, we do have uh, Jerry Hardin doing. He's doing that same thing again. He's he's playing. Mm. If you've seen him in Deep, seen him in X Files as Deep Throat, then you've certainly seen him at the beginning of Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, oh before we get to the meat of this thing, uh, do you at the present time have any knowledge of the whereabouts of a Mr. Jack Burton or his truck? Oh, God, will you leave him alone, Mr. Shen? Please, you could be in a great deal of trouble. Half a city block explodes in a ball of green flame. Green flame. I mean, so all hell is breaking loose here. And there are people who say you're involved, that you might be responsible, that you're a very dangerous man. Now, if you're protecting Jack you Burton... You leave Jack Burton alone. And we are in his debt. He showed 
great courage. Funnily enough, one of the things I learned about Big Trouble in Little China when I was uh, doing some of my background reading, I mean, obviously I've seen it half a dozen times and, and, and really enjoy the film. It's on part of my DVD A to Z. We've been trying to rattle through our, my DVDs from A to Z as well. And uh, yes, it's the anniversary, but nevertheless, uh, it's also part of that, that set as well. Um, but I, I, was, I was going back and doing some background research and that Jerry Hardin um, scene at the beginning where um, he's, he's a lawyer... Uh, and and he's sort of trying to set the scene up. It, it's supposed to be the whole movie's supposed to have already happened, isn't it? And he's saying, "Oh, yeah. you know, let's try and get to the bottom of this. What what seems to, what seems to have happened here?" That was actually a scene that was was added in afterwards. It was almost like a, almost a reshoot that was added in at the end. I think John Carpenter uh, actually said that the film really is about is supposed to be about the sidekick. It's not really supposed to be about um, about the, the the lead character, but as a result of that, the studio the studio didn't quite didn't quite get it. They thought, yeah. well, no, 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 this is this has to be about Kurt Russell. You have to set his character up a little bit better. So they tacked this scene on at the beginning where Egg Shen is talking to to the lawyer, and the lawyer's saying, "Well, you know, tell me more about this oh. this Burton character." Then, so they're setting the the studio just got got cold feet because, of course, in the actual movie. Kurt Russell is pretty bumbling and will fall over himself. And at one point, he he fires his before a fight scene. He fires his gun up into the air, doesn't he? And then <laughs> yeah. the rocks fall down on his head, oh, and man. he he was passed out for the whole fight scene. Uh, you're, so, you're right. You're right. <laughs> so it's so it's really about his his sidekick, who's the Asian guy, uh, who, who's, right. so it's, who's always on it's, top of it. It's common that. There, there, within a picture, there's an avatar for the audience. So a great example is basically any Keanu Reeves film because he's just a blank. Being kind, he's a blank for the audience, and especially in the Matrix, he's just he, we imagine ourselves as Neo. He learns the world as we learn the world, and that's the same in Big Trouble in Little China. But you're right, and I, I suppose that's one of those things that I had understood subconsciously, but hadn't realised that it isn't even Jack Burton's film. He wants to make it his film in a way because he's on the Pork Chop Express. Just listen to the old pork chop express and take his advice on a dark and stormy night, all right? When some wild-eyed eight-foot-tall maniac grabs your neck, taps the back of your favorite head up against a barroom wall, and he looks you crooked in the eye, and he asks you if you've paid your dues. Well, you just stare that big sucker right back in the eye, and you remember what old Jack Burton always says at a time like that. Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir, the check is in the mail. But yeah, he's he's ineffectual. <laughs> he doesn't have anything to do with the story, and he's Whereas always Dennis ru- amazing. <laughs> and, and it's always he's always running to catch up, and he's always saying, you know, what the hell is going on here? I don't understand yeah. any of this. And he's only there to get his truck back as well. Uh, yeah, he literally asks that question, doesn't it? And it's it's really bold in that way, in the way that he says, "Okay, explain everything to me." And well, as a kid, I hadn't realised how uh, sorry what a pastiche is of Western ignorance, but also. The martial arts and Hong Kong chop socky milieu, and like that's that's a joke, obviously. But and the bit like the bit where um he's in the wheelchair and they've got a well that goes to the center of the earth. And as a kid, you think, "Whoa, I wouldn't want to fall down that. That's awful." You know, as an adult, you're meant to think, "Well, I think there's hyperbole there, and it's meant to be humorous." But as a child, you just accept everything. One of my favourite Jack Burton bits when he doesn't understand something is when Egg says, uh, <laughs> 
They're crossing a bridge and something unspeakable emerges from a cavern and takes a couple of their number, their ninjas. Yeah. And Egg Shen wards him off with a little missile thing and says, you will come out no more. And yeah. Jack says, what? What will come out no more? <laughs> And he's looking over his shoulder, just back at it. We should set this up a little bit, though, for for anyone who who is um, completely in the dark. I, I think many listeners will be very familiar with the 1986 film uh, by John Carpenter, Big Trouble in Little China. It's a pretty amazing planet we live on here. And a man would have to be some kind of fool to think we're all alone in this universe. There is a hidden world where ancient evil weaves a modern mystery. What's going on here? Is this some kind of... Magic. The darkest magic. They call it Little China. Finally, we shall bring order out of chaos. It's where big trouble was waiting for Jack Burton. Who? Jack Burton. Me. Jack. Jack. Jack! They told him to go to hell. He make one move. And that's just where he's going. Somebody, I don't care who, tell me what is going on. I know that Andrew Doyle, I want to give him a shout out. When I uh, updated our Facebook page, um, to to uh, I updated our profile picture from a still from uh, Big Trouble in Little China, and Andrew Doyle... Uh, Long time listener and a dear friend of mine. I used to work with him back in Ipswich a few years ago. He uh, he just said, man, I love that movie. Really looking forward to that. So I um, want to give him a shout out and hopefully he's listening now and can, can hear us talk about it. What was funny with um, with this film for me is when I discovered this, when I, I, I really didn't know anything about it at all. I just saw it written down and I thought it sounded like a fun title. So I went to go and seek yeah. it out and then I bought the DVD uh, loved the cover artwork for the D- the DVD as well, and uh, yeah. you know, really does harken back to those um, you know those great '80s pictures, right? Those great '80s action pictures. Uh, and I, I really, I'm ashamed to say this now because I'm a Star Wars fan, an Indiana Jones fan. I should I have the chap's name off the t- tip of my tongue. Who's the artist I'm thinking of, Fletcher, who um, draws such uh, paints such wonderful uh, movie posters throughout the '80s for Back to the Future? And um, this one's Struzan. Just like a lot of the great Drew ones are Struzan, Struzan yeah. Because Struzan, Struzan does work for Lucas, doesn't he? He certainly does. Drew Struzan is a name I should have had on the top of my tongue. But um, but anyway, this was it, the origins of Big Trouble in Little China. It is a zany '80s, very '80s film, but but with its um its feet much like Star Wars, rooted in 1930s action adventure serials. Like mm. you said, there's a lot of Chinese mysticism, and well, the whole thing revolves around Chinese mysticism. But there's almost a Ming the Merciless kind of element to to a lot of it as well. And you're oh, right, it's it, all flooding back to me. I, I adore so much of it. <laughs> Man alive! <laughs> and it plays on Western ignorances of of, of that mysticism as well. Um, yeah, you're completely right. And but um, what I hadn't realised was the studio was rushing this one into production. It had quite a funny background. Uh, where it was actually the, the original script was set in in the Wild West. It was set in turn of the century San Francisco, and the studio got a hold of it, completely rewrote it from the ground up, and set it in more of a contemporary setting. Uh, in part to try and combat uh, the Golden Child by Eddie Murphy, which also has elements of uh, Chinese mysticism and that that mm. that kind of thing. So it really was in direct competition. And I think, funnily enough, Carpenter had already been asked by Paramount Pictures to direct Golden Child. Um, 
And it was only until years, a few years later did he realise that this that they'd actually been set up in direct competition. And I was reading an interview in Starlog magazine from 1986, which you can find online very easily, uh, where he says how many adventure pictures dealing with Chinese mysticism have been released <laughs> by major studios in the past 20 years. For two of them to come along at the exact same time is more than mere coincidence. <laughs> I think John Carpenter maybe hit the nail on the head there. But yeah, they rushed it into yeah. release. Um, and, and like I said, Carpenter really saw it more about about Burton's sidekick, Kurt Russell's sidekick, more, more than him. But um, Kurt Russell, what a performance as a kind of Indiana Jones, American, all-action yeah. hero, bravado kind of swagger and great one-liners. When I was nine years old, it was my favourite film, partly because I didn't understand the irony of it, which doesn't detract from it at all. If anything, it adds to it. But when you're a kid, you take all of it mm. as gospel. It's superb, and it's uh, one of those pictures where... You'll meet people who say, oh, yeah, it hasn't aged well. And you go back to it. And you, no, it's actually it's aged incredibly well. This isn't something that you liked because you were 10 years old and you were stupid. It's bloody brilliant. I, don't, I, can't, I can't believe it lost money. Again, it's probably because Hollywood wasn't ready for something so steeped in uh, an exotic, an oriental. And we can use oriental in, uh, mm. in both ways. But an oriental milieu. It wasn't ready. And, and the stuff that's happening, the flying through the air, which is... Straight, you know, Crouching Tiger did that 12 years later to great acclaim. But, and of course, um, Hong Kong and ja uh, Japanese pictures were doing that forever and ever. But it has all of those tropes flying through the air, the duel and, and all of the time that that incredible stuff is happening and, and uh, Egg Shen is fighting with Lo Pan um, with those kind of acorn things. Jack's just on the ground almost being crushed by the weight of a man in a suit of armour. Yeah. He can't move, can he? He's stabbed him to death, but he's, but, <laughs> he's stuck beneath him, pinned And beneath he him. looks around and just goes, oh, man. Because <laughs> he can't get the guy off. He can't get the dead body yeah. off. I would encourage anyone to go back and watch it and watch any of those fight scenes. Uh, yeah. And the, the editing is top-notch stuff. You know, so often these days, and we've talked about it a lot, so often these days I really do not know what's going on in a fight scene. I have no clue. In, the, in, in the, this film, you really do... Uh, you can keep track of it, and so much of it is inspired directly by a lot of the, you know, the kung fu pictures. And, and there's so many great, quick little cuts where, like you say, people flying through the air, but then you cut to where they're landing very, very quickly. And you know, yeah. the, the stunts are really good fun. One of the things I really do like about it as well is the they they put the money. It, it didn't have the biggest budget; it was sort of 22 million, which I suppose was decent money for those days. But you can see where they put the money, uh, and. Uh, it's in the sets, you know, that they really... That there's these big underground, almost Temple of Doom-like yeah, sets and structures. Yeah. But even outside in contemporary San Francisco, it's all a set, you know? It, 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 there's um, several uh, stories of, of, uh, of apartment blocks and uh, fire escapes. And, mm. and I, I always like a street set. I don't know why. There's something that's very old Hollywood about it. I always yeah. love the set in um, uh, the Alfred Hitchcock film Rear Window, when yeah. you can just look out and see what all the neighbours are doing in their in their various windows, and it's on this soundstage. And um, this this film has that in spades. So I love all, I love all of the sets. I love the editing of all the action sequences. I love all of the performances, the one-liners. Kurt Russell is an utter joy. I love the mm. quick-fire dialogue, the screw 1930s screwball comedy thing that is between him and Kim Cattrall. Which you don't really get away with now because they tried to do it in Jurassic World and uh, it just oh, yeah. <laughs> fell flat oh, on its there's face. No, there's no verve to that, is there? Where does this go? Up. 
to his office, Lopan's office. It's cooler up there from, from there we can... Do you have a gun, I hope? I have a knife. A knife? This guy's 12 feet tall! Seven. Hey, don't worry, I can handle him. I took something. I can see things no one else can see. Why are you dressed like that? Well, what a riot it is. The soundtrack, as usual, by John Carpenter, this time with Alan Holworth. Well, when I saw Carpenter live last year, he made sure to play that. I remember saying in the podcast that he introduced it in, in a, a wonderful showman, P.T. Barnum style. He said, uh, I made four studio pictures with a good friend of mine. And everyone cheered. And he said, but I think the most fun we ever had was when we went looking for a girl with green eyes. Mm. Down, 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 down. It's tremendous. Um, this is the th- this is why so often on the podcast I find it's easier to talk about films we find flaws in. Even like Dunkirk, for instance, terrific picture, but there was identifiable problems. Whereas Big Trouble in Little China, I'm so effusive in my praise, I, I can't be that critical. It's <laughs> almost, it's so much of it is excellent to me. I'm just uh, flummoxed. So it's whirling um, around me. You mentioned the soundtrack. I know that one of your pet peeves whenever we're watching uh, an X Files episode or anything where they go to Chinatown, or perhaps the characters go, that you suddenly get um, that slightly oriental-sounding music, which just sounds yeah. so goofy and out of place. And in that same interview I mentioned with Starlog magazine from 86, uh, Carpenter does talk about those kind of cliches. He says that other scores for American movies about Chinese characters are basically rinky-tink, chop suey music. I didn't want yeah. that for Big Trouble. And you're right, it's, it's all synth, 80s synth and rock and roll. So with Big Trouble in Little China... Uh, a film of such integrity and relative originality, so original that it was years ahead of its well time. ahead of the curve. You know, it, Hollywood, or rather American audiences, clearly weren't ready for that for at least another five years with uh, the introduction of Jackie and Chow Yun-Fat. Um, oh, yeah, I guess that's fi- a really good point. Another film by the same writer is uh, The Adventure of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, oh, a cult yeah. favourite of mine, which a lot of people have a working understanding of because the ending of Life Aquatic is taken from that film. And in fact, both have Jeff Goldblum. Um, Both are so original and both didn't do the box office that would allow for a sequel to be made. And it kind of shows that perhaps to an extent, the the middle has never wanted anything that's too interesting and, and too quirky. Okay, you people sit tight, hold the fort, and keep the home fires burning. And if we're not back by dawn, call the president. One film I'm going to try and catch this um, weekend, Fletch, if I get if I get a moment, is Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. I don't know what film you're going to try and try and see next, but that that's one oh. that's one that I'm quite looking yeah. forward to. Yeah, it's um, 
it feels a little bit like a Harold Harold and Maud kind of thing where it's got Jamie Bell, Billy Elliot right, himself. Yeah. And it's it's again it's about a young young boy falling for an older older lady. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that one. So that's one that I'm going to try and catch over the weekend. And maybe I'll finally get to see Thor Ragnarok uh as well because um it's been too long and of course we do like the director. He's a friend of ours, Takawaiti. Yeah. Uh Hunt, Hunt, for, Hunt, yeah. For, Hunt for the World of People and etc uh, etc. Et so Eagle versus Shark. Yeah. Exactly. I'll tell you what I can say about um Film stars don't die in Liverpool. I think it's based on the life of Gloria Graham. Is that right? I believe so. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not too familiar with it at the moment. I've just been sort of reading up on it, and I've seen, I've certainly seen the trailer. Um, but yeah, Gloria Graham actually is. Sorry, I'm just reading it now. You're quite right. And Gloria Graham married her ex-husband's son. Wow. In a in a very Woody Allen-esque entanglement, she was married to Nicholas Ray, the great director of film noir, and was operationally the stepmother of his son. Tony, who then years later she married. Now, it's been alleged that um, allegations made against Gloria Graham that she began seducing the kid when he was a kid, when he was 13, and that's when the affair began, and Nick Ray found out, and that's why he divorced her. It's been said that that may be a Hollywood slur designed to traduce the reputation of Gloria Graham. However, it's interesting that that's what Woody Allen did, and uh, she did it kind of worse than he did. At time, and and as, as well in the 50s, you think, my goodness, that would, you know, that'd kill you dead. Like, they'd be after you with pitchforks and torches. Mm. So I'm interested to see how that's... Um, I hope that you can report back and tell us how exactly that is handled. Because I wouldn't... You know, if they're making a Woody Allen biopic, I wouldn't want them... I wouldn't want them to flinch from the situation that he did eventually marry the daughter of his one-time girlfriend. You know, that's kind of a big deal. And if that's avoided in Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, then... That will be sad to see. But yeah, go and see it. Check it out for us and report back. And I want to see Ingrid Goes West with the lovely Aubrey Plaza. Those are some of the films that Fletch and I are going to be trying to check out. But I did do hope you enjoyed some of our conversations today. And um, do get in touch. We really are enjoying a lot of the listener feedback we're getting. And big shout-outs to the likes of Andrew Doyle and Tom Hadley for getting in touch with us via the Facebook page. That's how they're talking to us at One Sensational Shot. So if you search on Facebook for One Sensational Shot... That's where you'll find us. We're also on Twitter. We do appreciate the odd tweet. Uh, and that's it. Uh, well, at One Sensational. That's the Twitter handle, at One Sensational. So you can find us there too. Uh, but of course, the most important thing you can probably do is also find the website, which is onesensationalshot.com. There's a contact form on there if that's the way you choose to get in touch with us as well. And uh, I have to say, it really would help out if uh, you can leave us uh, reviews, positive, negative, or otherwise, mostly positive though in an ideal word five star reviews (laughs) is what we really want Uh, and uh, it would really help us out if you could do that on iTunes and Stitcher especially Um, but iTunes is a great one uh, and I'm sure many of you who've, uh, who've done the latest iOS update on your phones will have realized that there's actually quite an easy way now on the new podcast app uh, it's much easier to scroll down. If you go to the One Sensational Shot podcast, go to our feed, which I'm sure you've subscribed to. You can scroll down and you can actually quite quickly give us five stars and say a lovely couple of words and leave it there. So thanks very much indeed for tuning in this week. And we'll be back uh, as soon as humanly possible with the latest films we've seen. Uh, a look at look back to something from my DVD collection, perhaps something from the old and also, like we tease, uh, we're looking forward to putting together our, our picks of the of our favourite films for the year. We have not seen all of them. I'll certainly be talking about the ones that we, we enjoyed the most. So thanks very much, everyone, for listening. This is One Sensational Shot, signing off. You can feel the wind is rising, baby, the truth is here.
Feel the fun. 